hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. Glad you could tune in today. I have a lot of ground I want to cover. I think I have something for everybody. I'm going to be talking a bit about the markets uh, over the last couple of months. I've talked a lot about inflation, which seems to be the current hot topic today. Uh, and if you want to get my thoughts, you can go back and listen to a few of the last episodes or go to our website, which is uh, XMLFG.com. Once again, XMLFG.com. You can watch my annual outlook. I address the inflation question there. Uh, you can find it under the resources tab and then under webinars. So I'm going to be talking about the markets, a stock or two along the way. And then I want to talk a bit about fundamental investing or the fundamentals of investing. If you have a question, eh, feel free to send it to me at podcast, which is plural, podcast at XMLFG.com. And I'll try my best to answer. So let's get started. I think the market is just about perfectly priced, meaning there isn't much room for error here. So I'd continue to keep the bar high for new investments. Now, with that said, I did add to my holding in Visa, symbol V, for both myself and clients. Uh, you can assume everything that I talk about, I own. But just because I think it's right for me, doesn't mean that it's right for you. So you always have to do your own research. Visa or symbol V is trading around $225 as I'm, as I'm speaking now. On the surface, it doesn't look cheap. I don't know if it ever gets cheap because it's such a high quality, predictable type business. And the reason I like it is because I think that they can grow their earnings at an above average rate, meaning more than they have in the past, I think that they can grow faster than they have over the last few years over the next few years. Coming out of this pandemic, I think there's a lot of opportunity for them. Think about things like cryptocurrency. And that's helping people to buy it, helping people to cash out, enabling their partners with the settlement and all kinds of different things. Think of Visa as a toll road. They help people get from one place to another. And along the way, they collect a little fee for themselves. You know, they're a network that provides a platform. And I think that consumer spending is going to rise because all the pent up demand. Um, there's just a lot to like about Visa. The bottom line is that they're trading at what I would call a rather normal valuation for Visa. And I would think that it should trade higher than that in front of a period of rapid growth that I think is coming. So I like Visa. MasterCard is the same thing, symbol MC. MasterCard has more cross-border transactions, which I think may take just a little bit longer to come back. But it's basically the same story. I just prefer Visa here. So I think the market is priced as perfection, as I said. And I started thinking about it and I look back at the seasonality of the market and mainly because the clocks have changed and we've sprung forward. So I started thinking about this. According to FactSet and BCA research, over the last two decades, the first quarter has been the weakest for stocks on average, with March 
registering the steepest losses during that quarter. But if I broaden that out and I go back even farther, I look back to 1928, well, it tells a slightly different story. From that perspective, the market is fairly consistent with an upward-looking slope, albeit a little bit more volatile. Historically, the weakest months are May, September, and October. And October um, eventually culminates into as what we call the Santa Claus rally, the Santa rally. So if you give any credence to the seasonality of the market, which I do to a some extent, not a whole lot, but if you give credence to the seasonality of the market, you'd think that with the quarter one or the first quarter choppiness being about three quarters of the way done, well, then the second quarter could be a lower volatility quarter before we have to move in and contend with those seasonally weak months of September and October. We'll just have to see. But in the meantime, I still like the financials. The steeper the yield curve, the more money they make and the more challenged tech stocks become. The tech stocks, and I'm talking about big tech here, big tech is for the most part, rolled over. They rolled over in September and they haven't done much since. Uh, I guess the outlier here would be Google, symbol G-O-O-G. But these stocks have been carrying the load for a long, long time. And investors are seeing some of the other forgotten names that now have good growth opportunities and they're selling at lower valuations. Hence, you're seeing a rotation take place. That's not to say that you run out and sell all your tech names, but it's to point out that you shouldn't have all tech names. You do need some diversity in your portfolio if you don't have it. That's a great segue to me being able to talk about some of the basics of investing for those of you who are new to this. When when you're building a well-diversified portfolio, you're probably going to want to have some cash, some bonds, and some stocks in it. Now, what that mix is, is really dependent on your specific situation. So you want to make sure you have a financial plan. But you're going to have a portfolio that's going to have cash, some stocks, some bonds, maybe even some hard assets like gold or silver, or if you're more speculative, maybe even Bitcoin. But for today, I'm going to focus just on the stock portion. We don't have time to do everything, so I'm going to focus on the stock portion. The The stock side is what I love to do, always has. It's It's been my hobby. It's my profession. I'm a conservative value investor, which means I'm cheap. So what I'm looking for are good businesses run by good managers that are growing. Yes, just because I'm a value investor and I'm conservative doesn't mean I don't like growth. I love growth. I need growth. I want growth. So I'm looking for those businesses that are growing. But I also want them to be selling at reasonable prices. I just don't want to pay anything for a company that's growing. No, I want a deal. I don't ask for much, do I? And that's how I suggest you should approach your investments at least most of your investments. Speculation is okay. I'm fine with it. As long as you know that you are speculating and you do it with the money that you can afford to lose. But today we're talking about investing, long-term investing. And I want you to think of investing as if, or investing in stocks, as if 
you're buying a piece of the business or even the, the business outright. You own the whole business. If you're buying a business, you're going to want to make sure that it's making money, right? You don't want to buy something that that's going to require you to keep pumping money into it on the hope and prayer that maybe someday it'll turn around and it'll make money for me. Now, I want to I want a business that's making money. And as you build your portfolio of stocks, I want you to ask yourself two questions. One, is this a good business? And two, what price do I want to pay for it? That's the essence of value investing. The only way you're going to know that what, well, let me start with question number one. Is this a good business? The the only way you're going to know that is if you understand it, if you understand the business, don't buy something that you don't reasonably understand. So stay in your area of competency or, or where you feel competent. You probably understand what Apple does or what Microsoft does, but there are certainly other areas that you probably don't understand. I'd avoid them. When you look at a business, you also want to make sure that it has good end markets, meaning there's a steady growing demand for their services or their products for the foreseeable future. Say, you know, for example, back in the early 1900s, 1910, wouldn't it have done you any good to go out and buy the best buggy whip manufacturer there was. Because even though it was a great company and they made a great product, their product was going to become obsolete thanks to Henry Ford, right? That's why most value managers like financial stocks, the banks, the insurance companies, because they aren't going away. I don't know what you'll be driving in 20 years or uh, maybe if it's <laughs> more than likely, it's probably driving you. But anyhow, I'm willing to wager that you're going to be paying insurance on it or you'll want to get a loan to buy it. One or the other. You want a good, solid business that's being run by competent managers in the interest of the shareholders. That's you. You would be the shareholder. And this is a hard thing to judge. Sometimes people get blinded by returns and they just don't see beyond that. When you're doing your research, one of the things you have to do, in my opinion, is read at the very least, read the company's annual report. Actually, you should be reading the last five years worth of annual reports. At the beginning of the annual report is a letter from the CEO, the guy or gal that runs the company. And you want to compare what they're saying from year to year. Did one year, did they make a big promise or a big deal out of something? And then the next year, you just don't hear anything about it. It disappeared. If you see inconsistencies like that, well, that might be a red flag for you. Basically, what you're looking for is a business that's growing, as I said, a business that's providing a service or a product that's not going away anytime soon and a business that's run by good managers in your interest. Let's say you find a company that you're interested in. Now you have to answer the second question. And the second question is way harder to answer than the first question. The second question is, what price do I pay for this business? Well, sorry, folks. There is no magic bullet here. You can't just say, hey, I'm only going to pay less than 10 times earnings for a business. It doesn't work that way. 
what works well in valuing one business may not work so well for another business. Let me break out the toolbox here and start talking about some of the tools that we can use to value stocks that you're thinking about putting in your portfolio. And probably the one that you hear the most about is the P.E. ratio or the price to earnings ratio. If a stock and what it is, is if a stock is trading at ten dollars and it earns a dollar per share every year, well, then that stock is trading at 10 times what it earns or 10 times P.E. A tech stock is going to be valued differently, very differently than a consumer staple stock. So there is no right P.E. that you can just target. What I suggest is two things. First, look at the price people have been willing to pay for the business over the last, say, five to 10 years. If it's trading below that long-term average, well, you might be onto something. You also might want to consider a business's relative PE. So when the market goes up, people are paying more overall for stocks. And when it goes down, they're paying less overall for stocks. A relative PE lets you adjust for that. Right now, it's difficult because, you know, the E part of that equation or a company's earnings, well, it's kind of sketchy at this point. We just don't know because of the pandemic. But that'll, that'll give you a place to start. I love using Value Line. No, they don't pay me to say that. Um, but I like looking at Value Line because it gives me 15 years of data at a glance. So I can look and see if a stock is trading for more than it usually does compared to itself and compared to the market. And here's an example for you. A couple of months ago, Apple, simple AAPL, which I own for myself and clients. Again, assume that everything I talk about, I own. Apple got up to over what, 145, 145 a share. That was darn near 32 times earnings. Well above what the market was trading at. But if you looked at the value line, you probably would have noticed that for many, many years, the stock was trading hands at only 12 times earnings. Now, that's a value if you ask me. It was trading at 12 times earnings and a 30% discount to what the market was. So think about that. Apple trading 12 times earnings at a 30% discount to what the average stock was? You would have looked at that and said, you know, that was pretty cheap back then, but you know, at $145 or 32 times earnings, that's the most expensive it's been in a long, long time, if not forever. Well, I shouldn't say that. Probably when they first came out, it was more expensive, but it's the most, expen uh, most expensive it's been in a long, long time. And hopefully you wouldn't have gone out and bought a lot. You might have even sold some of what you owned. As I said, there's no right multiple of earnings to pay. I would argue you want to pay more for a high quality, predictable business than a low quality, unpredictable business. That's for sure. Sometimes it doesn't seem to work like that in the market. People were paying astronomical prices for companies that had no revenue and really no path into the future. It's crazy. Over time, Apple did become a high quality 
uh, high quality business because they became more predictable. They had more diverse income streams and therefore deserved a higher valuation, but it got a little overheated. Sometimes you may not even want to look at PE because it's meaningless. And a good example of that would be when you're talking about something like a REIT or a real estate investment trust. The reason is, is because accounting standards have them depreciating their properties, just like you would for a rental home. And we all know that over the long term, these properties, these office buildings, they aren't declining in value. They're actually growing in value. So for REITs, you want to look at the cash. You want to follow the cash, the cash flow. I love cash flow. I think that's a much better metric here. And with REITs, you'd look at things like funds from operations or FFO or even adjusted FFO. And again, one of my favorite things to look at is free cash flow. Cash. Free cash flow is uh, what some people refer to as the owner's earnings. Like I said, you want to buy a business that's making money. And I'm going to show I'm going to tell you how you can easily find out if a company is generating excess cash or that free cash flow. Excuse me. Let's stick with Apple since I've mentioned them already. If you go to their website and you pull up their annual report and in there you'll find the 10K and you want to scroll, scroll down to what they call the consolidated statement of cash flows. I'll wait. No, go to the consolidated statement of cash flows. This is what you need to do a simple free cash flow analysis or calculation. Write this down. You take net income, you add back in the depreciation and amortization charges because those aren't really cash charges. It doesn't affect their cash. So you add those back in and then you subtract out their capital expenditures. And I always like using a five-year average, so it kind of smooths it out. If you do that, if you work the numbers, you'll see that Apple, symbol AAPL, if I didn't mention it, Apple is generating free cash flow of about $5 a share. That's $5 a share after they've already invested back into the business to keep it running. With free cash flow, there's only so much you can do. You can pay down the debt. You can buy another company. You increase uh, R&D and you can pay a dividend and buy back stock. Those are good for me as a shareholder. All those things. You can go another step further if you want to and look at free cash flow yield. It's a lot like the P.E., You take the free cash flow and you divide it by the stock price. So in the case of Apple, we've already said they generate about $5 a share in free cash flow. Divide that by a stock price of $125, where it's trading at now. And that gives you darn near a 4% free cash flow yield. Well, it's much lower than the 7% from just a couple of years ago. So it's okay. Let's take a look at uh, one last tool you can use. And it's usually most effective for financials like the the banks. It's called price to book or, or book value, excuse me. Basically, all the assets get added up and then all the liabilities, well, they get subtracted out and you end up with book value or what a lot of folks personally, you would call your net worth. You add up what you have, what you owe, 
What's left over, it's your net worth for companies we call it book value. That's how much a company is worth. If a company goes bankrupt and they liquidate everything, you know about what you should get theoretically. But hey, let's face it. If you're a railroad and you go under and you're trying to sell off 100 locomotives, it might be a little hard and you certainly won't get the price that you're probably expecting for them, right? Fire sale. But I think book value is handy for the banks and insurance companies. And if you want to take this one step farther, you can look at tangible book value. And that basically wipes out the effects of goodwill and other non-cash items. So book value, tangible book value would just be the actual hard assets that they have. So there you have it. Three ways that you can use to value a stock when you're doing your research. And as I said, there is no one way. There is no magic bullet. You just have to do your homework. And that means working the numbers. You have the P-E ratio, which you could also use the relative P-E. You could look at a company on a cash flow basis, the free cash flow. But look at it from a book value standpoint. Those are the three helpful metrics that I've been using when I value stocks. And I hope you find them useful, too. All right. That's about all we have time for today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. This is Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing, and we are done. to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talk about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the XML Financial Group. I typically own and trade the securities I'm discussing, both personally and for my clients, but not all of them. Likewise, employees of XML and our affiliate broker-dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.